worship this morning is from Psalm 33rd. Truly the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let those who are able stand as we sing the praises of the Lord. Almighty God, you are the good, good Father. And from your hand we have received all good things. Lord, we return now these gifts, tithes, and offerings from all that you have given us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that they would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, use all these resources. Use us as a blessing out into this community that this world would know of your grace, your love, your compassion, and your salvation in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. This have been reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 6. David came to Nob, to the priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to the priest Ahimelech, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, No one must know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what have you at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no ordinary bread at hand, only holy bread, provided that the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Indeed, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is a common journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. It's good to see all of you. I couldn't see you through the flowers. And so many thanks to the Berger family for Aunt Betty's flowers from yesterday. And so we celebrate that. But I wanted to be able to see all of you over here. And so, well, our New Testament text today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest. 
and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Lord our God, we do ask your blessing now that in this time, in this place, as we dwell in your presence, you would open your word to us. You would reveal to us who you are and who you have called us to be, and that your word would go forth boldly in proclamation, in all we say and all we do. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at the fourth of five advances in the kingdom that Jesus made early in his ministry in Capernaum. You might remember that the first was when Jesus' authority to declare the forgiveness of sins of the paralytic man. The Pharisees were stunned and offended. But then Jesus demonstrated his authority, his power to make such a declaration by telling the man, rise, take your mat, and walk. The second was when Jesus sought out, called, and went to the home of Levi, that is Matthew. He hosted a dinner eating with tax collectors and sinners. And again, the Pharisees and the scribes were disgusted by Jesus investing in and not separating himself from those who were receiving him joyfully. And last week, we looked at the third, and the question came from normal people, why do John's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast, but you don't? And Jesus' response was that the fasting was for the purpose of seeking God's presence. And there was no need to fast for the purpose of seeing God, seeking God's presence when Jesus was with them. In him, the kingdom of God was present. And then building on that thought, he explained that the kingdom of God was something completely new, something discontinuous from all that they had known and all that had gone before. So his disciples were not fasting because they were experiencing the joy of the kingdom of God as they were in Jesus' presence. So today is that fourth incident. And our text this morning is, it's, well, it's odd. I mean, it's just odd. And I need to confess up front that this is a tough text. It presents us with a paradox. Webster's Dictionary defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet perhaps is true. Or something with seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. Because on the one hand, Jesus' initial response to the Pharisees' question seems to justify the disciples' behavior, plucking the heads of grain in the field through which they're traveling on the Sabbath. And he did so by making reference to David's law-breaking, the inference being that the disciples were fine 
in ignoring the traditional understanding of the Sabbath. And then on the other hand, Jesus affirmed the observation of the Sabbath, said that the Son of the Man is Lord of the Sabbath, indicating support and authority for the third command of the Ten Commandments. Find those in Exodus 20. Remember the third command, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. So, which is it? Do you observe the Sabbath or not? Two hands, seemingly contradictory, and yet, because Jesus said it, perhaps true. Two hands make one paradox. Now, the temptation here is to try and find some sort of middle way to reconcile it. A few years ago, I was listening on the radio on my way to work, and I heard John MacArthur expounding on a paradox in a different passage. And he said something that I think is helpful here for us to remember. He said, when you come on a paradox in Scripture, don't come up with an answer in the middle that kills both ends. In other words, there are some mystery in God's word that need to remain mysteries. And his example was the Lord's Prayer. He says, why do we pray thy will be done if God is sovereign and his will is going to be done anyway? Right? Well, God is sovereign and prayer does work. It's both. He said, there's an answer for how to resolve this paradox. I just don't know what that answer is. <laughs> Sometimes we have to grapple with the mystery of God, and that's where we are this morning. And I realize that's kind of a long introduction, but I hope it sets the stage. But I know that most of you are out there right now with a question in your heart. Does that mean that we get to do yard work, shop, or go to our kids' athletic games on Sunday, or anything else, or not? Well, let me suggest that we not start there. <laughs> let's go back and let's look at what was going on and why Mark included this in the gospel that he was writing to believers in the early church. Now, the setting for this text is a short walk on the Sabbath near Capernaum. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? Jesus, the disciples, sharing a nice walk with the Pharisees, right? What a parade. Pharisees, you know, just starting with one Sabbath, Mark seems to be indicating that this is another in a series of the confrontations without necessarily indicating that they were one right after another. So there they are, strolling along. Apparently a route that was less than a half a mile that was allowed by the Pharisees, and you can check, you can see them checking their Fitbits, right? <laughs> Some of the disciples begin to pick grain from the field. Now, you might think this was theft, but even the Pharisees didn't object to the practice because it's specifically allowed in Deuteronomy 23. 
If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the Pharisees' objection was whether plucking constituted work or labor on the Sabbath. Pharisees say to Jesus, look, why are, they doing what's, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And you need to remember that Sabbath law was significant in Judaism. I mean, it's obviously a commandment. But it also was a visible marker of the reality of God's covenant. In other words, you knew God was real because people observed the Sabbath. They wouldn't do so if God were not real. Some communities of Jews observed the prohibition of work on the Sabbath to an extraordinary event. The Essenes, from whom many believe John the Baptist came, they forbade giving help to a birthing animal or to help anybody who'd fallen into a pit. Research seems to indicate that the Pharisees weren't quite as restrictive, but that they were deeply concerned about delineating what could and could not be done. In fact, in order to protect the Sabbath, the Pharisees had developed this tradition that there were 39 separate tasks that were specifically prohibited. And those 39 were organized in six different categories. We're not going to go through all of those. <laughs> all right? Reaping, however, which is the accusation that the Pharisees were leveling against the disciples, it was the third prohibited task. And they confronted Jesus because they wanted to hold him accountable for the actions of his disciples. I mean, they thought they had him. Now, look at Jesus' paradoxical responses. And I know it's somewhat confusing to follow. But first, Jesus referred back to Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture that Alan read this morning, and then either as the conclusion of the answer to the Pharisees or as Mark's summary conclusion of a longer discourse regarding the Sabbath, Jesus makes this statement. The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath, so that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we're going to look at these one at a time. First, in response to the accusation of law-breaking, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. He says, Have you not read the example of David? That is, David breaking the law by eating the bread of presence, which was not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Now, on the face of this, it doesn't seem to respond to the accusation of the Pharisees. I mean, David was on the run. He was hiding from King Saul. David made up this story to tell Ahimelech. In other words, he lied. He bore false witness in order to get food. He ended up with the bread of the presence, which by law only the priests were allowed to eat. So David lied and violated the law and yet was not condemned for it. How does that work? Right? How do we make sense of that? And even if we think Jesus was making an exception because David was in distress... How would that apply here? The, the, the disciples aren't in any kind of distress. 
And some of you may have noted, if you've been listening carefully, that Jesus, Mark quotes Jesus as saying, when Abiathar was high priest. Alan read, when Ahimelech was high priest. Some of the earliest manuscripts of the gospel indicate Jesus said when Ahimelech was high priest, but most have what we have, which is Abiathar. So did Mark misquote Jesus, or did Jesus deliberately get the story wrong? It's a head-scratcher. It's a mystery, right? Well, after wrestling it for a long time, I wonder if Jesus' point in asking, have you never read was to rebuke the Pharisees for thinking too highly of themselves. I mean, the Pharisees couldn't explain why David wasn't condemned for lying and violating the law, nor apparently did they know scripture well enough to correct Jesus about who was high priest. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you don't know everything. Stop acting like judge and jury as if you do know everything. The rather loose reference to David's behavior seems to be saying to the Pharisees, if you can't explain why it was okay for David to break the law there, don't sit in judgment here. This is the kind of passage that is a flashing yellow light to me each week. Because the folks who knew scripture best didn't recognize Jesus. And the folks who were the salt of the earth and just going about their business were the ones who were drawn to him and responded with joy. The Pharisees knew the scripture revealed God. They just didn't anticipate that God would actually show up in real life. Do we? Do we anticipate that God will actually show up in real life here? When I step into this pulpit each Sunday to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, I am constantly reminded of my unworthiness and my shortcomings to be God's spokesperson. It is not confidence in myself, but confidence and hope in God that gives me strength to preach to you. I stand in the hope that the Holy Spirit is moving in ways I can't understand and cannot control, touching lives and convicting hearts that fills me with joy at the blessing of being called to proclaim the gospel to you. Because I am always aware of the mystery of God. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And we need to realize that our best efforts to understand God are never going to fully comprehend him. That is, we see now in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. We tread on very thin ice when we try and sit in God's place and judge others. Well, then you get Jesus' second response, in which he says the purpose of the talks about the purpose of the Sabbath, and that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This makes more sense. Jesus was pointing out that the law was not designed to punish humankind. It was given as part of the covenant with a loving God, a God who had called people out of the bondage of Egypt, the people whom he had carried and sustained to Sinai, the people he had gathered for the purpose of worshiping him. The covenant was about 
God's love. It included the law. The Sabbath was a command to rest, a blessing God gave us so that we would conform to how we were created. The Sabbath was an opportunity for us to tithe our time in worship to God. It was a chance to reset and be renewed. It wasn't a punishment or a burden. It's a blessing. As a brief digression, let me just point out that we ignore Sabbath to our own detriment. We often use this passage to dismiss the relevance of Sabbath, not remembering that the Sabbath was given to us for our benefit. When we're too busy to tithe our time to God, we damage ourselves by exhausting ourselves and by distancing ourselves from God. I'm not saying that we ought to legalistically observe the Sabbath. I am saying we would be blessed to heed God's call to rest in Him. So again, as we've seen in each one of these accounts of the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus rebuked them for missing the main blessing. As they did with Jesus commanding the unclean spirit out of the man, with the forgiveness of the paralytic, eating tax collectors and sinners, they missed the blessing because they were trying to protect the law. What's it mean to try and protect the law? Some of you may know this feeling. It's the feeling like we need to defend God or that we need to protect God from those who don't see things the way we do. It means using the law as a wedge. It means revering form over substance. There's a story of a Presbyterian congregation in the Old South. This is the kind of congregation where the ushers had the, the coats with the long tails, collars starched, and then some, right? Hymns sung on a precise meter, and there are no cushions on the pews. <laughs> so you get the picture, right? Well, one Sunday, congregation is full, and a young man in tattered clothes, very dirty, comes in, and you feel the tension rise, right? His hair's unkempt, his eyes look really tired, and he walks down the main aisle looking for somewhere to sit, and there's no seats because it was so full, and so he walks all the way to the front, and looking, sits down by the front pew. Now the head usher, this old, stern-looking man who'd obviously been doing this job for years, begins walking up the main aisle. And he walks slowly because of his age and because of his difficulty in walking. And slowly he makes his way forward. And you can hear the buzz in the congregation as he passes each pew. You can feel the tension rising. And finally, just as the preacher is about to get into the pulpit, the usher reaches where the boy is sitting, and he pauses. And then with great difficulty, he sits down next to him. And the preacher, the wise man, says to the congregation, you know, nothing I say to you this morning is going to proclaim the gospel any better than what you've just seen. 
As we consider the kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming, let's remember the blessing he was revealing. Now, I want to just change gears here because I want to look at what Mark was doing with this event. Because it's not difficult to figure out why Mark included this in the gospel. If Mark's first readers were a combination of Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome, it's reasonable to think that they were like other early congregations which were being told to submit to Orthodox Judaism. That is, in order to be good Christians, you need to subject yourselves to the fullness of the Pharisaical laws and traditions. Mark's saying that instead of being cast as second-class Christians or unrighteous believers, Mark was exhorting the believers in Rome to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The outward form is not nearly as important as the inward relationship. The inward relationship with Jesus forms the foundation for how we treat one another. And Mark urged believers to worry less about how others are following the rules and regulations and focus more on how to encourage one another to follow Jesus. Now, this is an important word for us because we live in a world that's really pretty similar to ancient Rome in the sense that there is spiritual chaos and anarchy all around us. There are all sorts of complete competing claims. And how are we doing in this mix? Well, polling has revealed that a majority of Americans, particularly young Americans, have a negative opinion of Christians and the church. I mean, they equate Christianity with intolerant, hypocritical, status quo supporting self-righteousness. And the impression is that Christians live only to condemn everyone else who doesn't believe like them. And it's easy to illustrate the, the litmus tests that are used to show the judgmentalism of the church. Sexuality, pluralism, race relations. Because you know, Christians are phobic, intolerant, oppressors and microaggressors. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? In other words, we've been cast in a negative light because we're known most for the things we disapprove. And although we want to believe that's an inaccurate picture, we have to consider why it is that people have that perception. That perception exists, at least in part, because of the way we treat one another in the Christian world. We compete with one another, and we try and establish ourselves as better. And listen, I, I will, I'll be the first to confess to you that I pinch my nose, I sigh, and I think judgmentally when I read what's happening in the PCUSA, our former denomination. Now, let me be clear. I think they're headed in a bad direction and in error, but even if I'm correct, that doesn't make me more righteous. The tragedy in our text today is this. The Pharisees were walking with Jesus. They actually were walking with Jesus. However, instead of enjoying the blessing of being in his presence, 
they were focused on judging others. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. The outward form of obedience is not nearly as important as the inward relationship with our Savior. That inward relationship with Jesus is where our righteousness is established. It forms the foundation for how we treat one another. We don't get to pick whom Jesus loves. We need to worry less about evaluating how others are following the rules and regulations and focus more on sharing and encouraging one another to follow Jesus. Now, I get it. As we conclude this morning, some of you are still wondering, well, is it okay for us to do yard work? (laughs) If you were to ask Jesus, if we were to ask Jesus, we should be prepared to hear the response, how is your walk with me? I know that doesn't necessarily answer the question which in a way we'd like, but it is the only important issue. How is your walk with me? You see, following Jesus, having a closer walk with him, will lead to obedience in mysterious and wonderful ways. Following Sabbath rules or any other rules without following Jesus is meaningless. It is to follow form without substance. It is to be lost. So is the Sabbath important? Yes. Was it okay for the disciples to be plucking grains on the Sabbath? Yes. It's a paradox and it's a mystery. But what's the point? The point is we're to walk with Jesus, the Son of Man who's revealing the presence of an advancing kingdom of God, the Son of Man, who is even Lord of the Sabbath. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Paul, can we have that slide up again? The lad, just a, Friends, as you go out humming this hymn, this is the gospel. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Go tell someone. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, rest, remain, and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.